We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We're quick to affirm that we're saved by grace. Most of us probably say grace at mealtime. In fact, if you're a few days late on a payment, you hope that there is a grace period. You see, the word grace is part of our religious lexicon. But grace isn't just a noun. It's not just something we possess or say or sing. Grace is a verb. Ultimately, grace is about how we treat other people. On a rooftop in Joppa, Peter receives a vision from heaven. God is allocating grace in new ways. He's telling Peter that what he once called unclean, he now calls okay. That includes both pork chops and Gentiles. But as soon as the vision ascends, there's a a knock at the door. Three men, Gentiles no less, challenge Peter to practice what he's learned. It's not enough to know grace if you're not going to show grace. If you're a child of God, then you have tasted of God's amazing grace. Grace is love that's on the house. What Jesus did on the cross gets credited to me, and all I do is believe. The Bible teaches that we obtain and maintain a right standing with God by grace alone through faith alone. As Paul puts it, not of works, lest any man should boast. I love the Dennis the Menace cartoon strip. Dennis and his buddy Joey, they're on their way home from Mrs. Wilson's house. Their hands are full of cookies, and there's these great big chocolate smudges on their face and these great big smiles to boot. And that's when Joy says to Dennis, I wonder what we did to deserve this. And Dennis, who normally acts like a menace, he responds with the perfect definition of grace. He says, look, Joy, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice, but because she's nice. That's grace. It's unmerited favor. God saves us and blesses us not because we're good, but because he's gracious. And if you've been listening, you know this truth. We stand by grace alone. Peter also knew this truth. If anyone believed in God's grace, it was the disciple who proved chicken before the rooster crowed. I mean, Peter had been so confident that night, he would never deny the Lord. Then he did it three times in rapid-fire succession. And to pour salt on the wound, big, bad, braggadocious Peter denied his master in front of a campfire girl. Oh, yes, Peter needed God's grace. Peter believed in grace. Peter received grace. Yet in Acts chapter 10, God has to teach Peter to apply His grace. Can we admit, just because it's a truth we know about, doesn't mean we're living it out? For Christians, practice tends to lag behind theology. In Acts chapter 10, Peter gets educated in grace. Then the very next moment, God calls on Peter to exhibit that grace. God doesn't give him the luxury of just believing in grace. He has to live it out. And as ambassadors of Christ, 
so do we. Peter has a vision, and it not only turned his own life topsy-turvy, but it marked the turning point in the plan of God and the scope of his church. This is why next to the day of Pentecost, what happens in Acts chapters 10 and 11 is the most strategic moment in the history of the church. Never has so much theology been worked out over one lunch hour. Hey, this was a power lunch. Up until this vision, grace was like a live hand grenade that Peter had used as a paperweight. I mean, he didn't know what he held in his hand. But through this vision, grace will explode into every practical corner of Peter's life. Let me read from Peter's recollection of the story. I'll start in Acts chapter 11, verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Now Peter's in the seaside town of Joppa. He's lounging, he's praying up on the rooftop. It's lunchtime and his stomach is growling. Boy, is he hungry. He'll settle for a bowl of littles or some matzo balls. He'd really like a moist slice of mutton. Hey, he'll even settle for a falafel. Yet suddenly the heavens open and this ponderous picnic blanket descends from the sky. All kinds of incredible inedibles are on the menu. Wild beasts and creepy things and birds and foul foods are the featured entrees. God's tasty selections fly in the face of what Peter's religion has taught him he can munch. Yet God the lawgiver tells him, rise Peter, kill and eat. In the first century, Jews and Gentiles were separated by pedigree by circumcision, by Sabbath worship. But above all, they were defined by diet. You see, a kosher Jew was religiously superior to a non-kosher Gentile. And that kosher Jew would never in a million years pull up to a table full of God-forbidden food. Nor would he eat with folks who occupied the table. Jewish dietary laws were the epitome of religion. Yes, the distinction between clean and unclean had some definite health benefits, especially in a day when meat wasn't always properly prepped and refrigerated. But kosher laws were part of a bigger picture. God had conditioned Israel to approach life in a certain manner. All of life was to be delineated as clean and unclean, holy and unholy, pure and impure, 
acceptable to God and unacceptable to God. This distinction was a grid that that laid over every dimension of life, food and sacrifice and washing and houses and even people. The Jewish law provided us a means to differentiate good from bad. Through the law, you could pick out the good guys and the bad guys. You see, this is the purpose behind not just Jewish religion, but all religion. Muslim religion, Buddhist religion, Hindu religion, even pseudo-Christian religion defines clean from unclean. Every religion has its own standards and taboos and rituals that allow it to label the pure from the defiled. Often liberal critics will attack religion as the enemy of unity. They claim that religion is the great divider of mankind. That rather than bring us together, it keeps us apart. It separates us into factions and it inflames hostilities. And in a sense, this is true. For every religion divides humanity into holy and unholy. And no other religion did this as comprehensively and as rigorously as God's religion, Judaism. Kosher Jews were reminded at every single mealtime that there was such a thing as right and wrong, holy and unholy. Good guys ate the clean foods. Bad guys ate the dirty birds. And of course, Judaism didn't end with diet. It did such a thorough job identifying good from bad that by the time you had subjected your life to the entire Mosaic Law, you could conclude with Rabbi Saul in the first three chapters of the letter to the Romans, that none of us are righteous. No, not one. An honest Old Testament Jew was forced to an uncomfortable conclusion. Everybody is a bad guy. In the ranks of humanity, there are no good guys. This is why Christianity picks up where Judaism leaves off. You know, we say this all the time, but without its full implications hitting us, Christianity is not a religion, and that's true. Christianity is about salvation, not religion. Religion chooses sides. It picks out the good guys from the bad guys. It assigns white hats and black hats. Religion awards merit badges to folks for accumulating filthy rags. That's not Christianity. The gospel declares that we're all bad guys. There's only one good guy. His name is Jesus. And the goal of Christianity is to bring everybody to Jesus. Whether you're a Tech fan or a Georgia fan. A Mac user or a PC user. Decaf or regular. Plastic or paper. Coke or Pepsi, boxers or briefs, Republican or Democrat, you're a bad guy and you need Jesus. Unrighteous bad guys and self-righteous bad guys, secular bad guys and religious bad guys, pew-sitting bad guys and pulpit-occupying bad guys, heretical bad guys and Calvary Chapel bad guys all need Jesus. Today, the line in the sand for all of humanity is no longer the grub we put in our mouth, but whether or not the grace giver 
lives in our hearts. Here's what's happening in Peter's vision. God is putting an end to religion. He's replacing it with salvation. Judaism was religion. It was God's religion. A perfect religion, no doubt. But it was still religion. Now God puts religion on the shelf. And he chooses new terms for his covenant with humanity. Christianity is salvation, not religion. And God is saying to Peter, drop the religious distinctions. Folks are no longer to be labeled clean or unclean, chosen or common, white hats or black hats. The line of demarcation has changed. It's no longer good guy and bad guy. It's now a matter of receiving the love that none of us deserve. Imagine Bubba, a good old southern boy. Like Peter, he's lounging on the rooftop. He's got a sweet tea in one hand and a Baptist hymnal in the other. He's trying to memorize that third verse of his favorite hymn. When he sees a vision, a huge Hawaiian shirt falls from the sky. And on top of this Hawaiian shirt, there are long-haired hippies with bell-bottom pants. They're playing electric guitars and drums and singing songs to Jesus. And Bubba thinks, this can't be. I've heard all my life that you can't go to be a Christian and go to heaven and have long hair. Electric guitars and drums in church are of the devil. And yet God says, rise Bubba, play and sing. And Bubba has no choice. If the Almighty wants to change the rules, he can do whatever he pleases. Bubba is the one who needs to adapt. It's no longer about religion. It's now all about salvation. Well, in a sense, this is what happened to me. Hi, I'm, my name's Bubba. I was Bubba. I grew up in the South. I grew up in a traditional Southern Baptist church. I believed that we were saved by grace. But grace had yet to explode in my soul. I still thought in terms of good guys and bad guys. I spent all my time trying to define who was in what category. And hippies? That was easy. They can't possibly please God. But when Delta landed and I drove to Calvary Chapel, I saw God work in ways that transcended my personal pre preferences. Grace exploded in my heart. The pastor wore a Hawaiian shirt, not a suit and tie. The only hymns the musicians knew were the other guys in the band. Long hair set next to crew cuts. I mean, there was nothing religious or traditional or churchy about the place. Yet the presence of God and the love of God was so real and so tangible. At Calvary Chapel, I realized for the first time, that you didn't have to agree with my religious tastes or with my preferences in worship or every detail of my theology or wear the colors of my particular Christian denomination to be accepted by God. For the first time, I tasted grace. And to this day, I'm still hooked. Yet over the years, I've observed the sad truth that we all have our own set of kosher laws. All people get religious at times, even Calvary Chapel people. Religion is easier than grace. 
pride causes us to lean toward religion. As long as there's another rung on the ecclesiastical ladder to which I can climb, my pride will feed off the accomplishment. It's only when there's absolutely nothing I can do, when it's all about grace, then my ugly, self-righteous pride is left to shrivel and wither and die. Jesus paid it all. You and I are no more worthy of God's favor than the serial killer or the child molester. This is why it's foolish for any of us to think in terms of good guys and bad guys. We are all hanging on by a strong yet single thread of grace. You see, religion was temporary. The epicenter of religion was the temple, its codes and its categories. And yet it's no surprise when we get to heaven, there will be no temple. It will have been replaced by Jesus. I love Revelation 21 verse 22. John sees into heaven and he says, I saw no temple in it, but the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. On the rooftop in Joppa, God shows Peter that he's through with religion. That it's now all about Jesus. And yet sadly, there are churches today where religion is alive and well. Here's here's how it works. Church leaders, they lay down their own laws. They create their own litmus test for who's in and who's out. How you look, or how you vote, or how you educate your kids, or how you practice culture ends up the dividing line. If you conform to the leader's man-made rules, you can ride in the front of the bus. If you don't, you sit in the rear. Believers are divided into first class and coach. It's a religious caste system. That's what it is, and it's the very opposite of grace. If this kind of pecking order exists in a church, then shame on its leaders. They have failed to apply God's grace. Hey, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. What God has cleansed, you must never call common. Later, Peter will write to all believers And he'll say to them, he'll call them God's own special people. Everybody is special to God in his eyes. We're complete in Christ, not because we tow the party line. You know, when I walked into Calvary Chapel for the first time, nothing mattered about you. How you styled or talked or dressed or groomed or where you went to school or if you went to school or if you had a job or your attitude toward the war or your political persuasion, or even your denominational affiliation. Nothing mattered but whether you loved Jesus. And it wasn't that we didn't have opinions on these other issues. It was just that Jesus was everything. Yet this is not the attitude in all churches. Other concerns can crowd out God's grace. Superficial stuff gets in the way of our love and our acceptance. People get judgmental. They want to check out a brother's badge before they offer him their fellowship. Oh, he might love Jesus, but how does he stack up? We tend to divide into good guys and bad guys, even among ourselves. It's sad when Christians name call and finger point at other Christians. Now, don't misunderstand. When it comes to false doctrine, when it comes to heresies that threaten our faith, The church has a duty to discriminate between truth and error. We need to speak out. But God hasn't called the church to police the neighborhood. Her job is not to enforce the law, but to spread the grace. I like to give folks the benefit of the doubt. 
and room to grow and the freedom to think for themselves and to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Neither I nor you nor us has a monopoly on the truth. We can still learn from others. When I first entered Calvary Chapel, I saw lots of finger pointing. But we were all pointing one way to Jesus. It's sad to see us now point a judgmental finger at other groups that we differ with over non-essential matters. Or worse, point fingers at each other. Rather than point, we need to pray. We need to encourage, not condemn. We should be known by what we're for, not by what we're against. Here's the big question. Are we continuing in the grace that we have received? You know, it's cru- crucial that churches today preach grace. Perhaps even more so, it's vital that church members practice grace. Yet this is where Peter resists. God tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter replies, not so, Lord. And this wasn't just a simple act of disobedience. It was far more complicated. Peter was trapped in a bias. And nothing is as big a barrier to living in grace as a religious bias. It can undermine a whole movement of grace. Peter was hemmed in by three powerful forces. By principle, by prejudice, and by precedence. And this is what keeps churches today from practicing grace. Understand, some of our cherished principles may or may not reflect God's truth. You see, principles are informed or misinformed depending on how they're formed. Peter grew up a good Jew. Tradition forged his principles. He went to synagogue on Saturday. He paid tithes kept Passover, fasted on Yom Kippur, and Peter kept kosher in obedience to Leviticus chapter 11. He only ordered off the clean menu. His wife went to the deli with the kosher decal in the window. Shrimp and lobster and shellfish had never crawled across Peter's lips. My, oh my, Peter had never savored a varsity chili dog or a plate of pork barbecue. It was a matter of principle. Hey, I will never doubt Peter's devotion to principle. To me, a life without pork barbecue rivals the zeal of a suicide bomber. When God told Peter to eat unclean foods, it was as if 1,500 years of tradition and the law of Moses and a thousand rabbis And his entire Jewish family was screaming in Peter's ear to ask for another menu. From birth, Peter's conscience had been drilled to keep kosher. You see, this wasn't a matter of simple preference. It was a deeply held matter of conscience. It was a principle. Yet check this out. It was a misinformed principle that kept Peter on the wrong side of God's will. Our conscience is an organ that we train to act on cue. The conscience is taught by truth or by tradition. It can fight against the Holy Spirit or it can be His ally. You see this today. Go to the Middle East. And on both sides of the conflict, it's a matter of conscience. Jews can't give in to Muslims. Their conscience won't let them. 
Muslims can't concede to Jews because it would be a violation of their conscience. Evidently, a conscience can be programmed by truth or by error. Peter needed to surrender his conscience to the lordship of Jesus. Some of Peter's principles were wrong. Some no longer applied. God was blazing a new trail. A sovereign God is stepping out of the box and he's recruiting Peter to step out with him. But Peter has to cut ties with a few long-held principles if he's going to be part of this fresh new work of God's grace. Perhaps you do too. Well, Peter was also trapped by a prejudice. And don't underestimate the power of a prejudice. When Peter thought of eating pork and visiting Gentiles, it just didn't feel right. In fact, whether it was right wasn't really his biggest hurdle. This was just outside Peter's comfort zone. Prejudicial feelings caused his resistance. You know, I know some prim and proper Baptists who would never come to church wearing short pants or mow their lawn on Sunday. It just wouldn't feel right. There are some things that don't feel right to you, but that doesn't make them wrong for someone else. A Christian's job is to represent God's truth not his own prejudice. To live by grace, I make the decision not to let my preferences or my feelings or my traditions govern my interactions. You see, your prejudices will close the door to certain people. Grace will keep those doors wide open. God made the Holy Spirit Lord over his flock, not you and me. This was a tough decision for Peter. Perhaps that's why the vision was repeated three times. He had to wrestle with it. He had to dissect truth from prejudice. You see, God needs, God's grace needs to be free to touch new people in new ways. Thankfully, Peter decided not to let the work of God be enslaved by his own personal prejudices. And for Peter to obey God, he also had to step over a precedent. He answered, nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. I mean, Peter had established a standard for his life. He had never, ever let this happen, never. Peter had never ordered sausage on his pizza. And this is the type of conviction religious people applaud. Like an Eric Little never running a race on Sundays. Or a Sandy Koufax not pitching on Yom Kippur. A guy makes a costly commitment and refuses to budge. Well, here Peter does the same, but it works against God's will in his life. You see, God wants to take Peter not up to the edge of where he's been, but to a new place. Peter has to step over a precedent in his life to obey God. Some steps are hard to take just because they've never been taken before. Peter has a decision to make. Kill and eat or sit still and disobey. On the rooftop, God was weaning Peter off religion in preparation for an adventure of grace. Perhaps that's what needs to happen in your life. Understand, unlike religion, Christianity isn't a commitment to a principle or a prejudice or a precedent. It's the pledge of allegiance to a person. And this is how God seals the deal in verse 9. But the voice answered me again from heaven, 
What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Notice the ruler trumps the rules. The lawgiver overrides the law. As followers of Jesus, our conscience is bound to one passion, to please our Lord Jesus. We're not to follow religious expectations or church traditions or even the rules of our own making. We're to follow Jesus. Will you go where he sends you? Will you do what he instructs you to do? Will you love whoever he sends to your door? Are you ready for an adventure of grace? And realize, there will always be a knock at the door. For grace is never theological or theoretical alone. Grace is always practical. This is God's intention. You see, you get grace from God, then you share that grace with everybody around you. That's how it works. And it's the giving of God's grace that launches you on this grand adventure. Extend God's grace and you'll find yourself in some uncomfortable places with uncomfortable people dealing with some uncomfortable situations. You see, good guys, they like to hang out with other good guys. They don't want to get soiled or dirty, so they keep a distance from the bad guys. But when you realize you're one of the bad guys, that we're all bad guys in need of Jesus, then you start to gravitate toward the lost and the lonely. You'll want to show grace to other bad guys and bring them to Jesus. In fact, start sharing God's grace with the bad guys around you and you'll be criticized by the religious good guy crowd. You know, we read the story of the prodigal son and we admire the extravagance of the father's grace. But the elder brother had a different opinion, didn't he? He thought his old man was unfair and flippant and soft on sin. He figured rules were in place to keep the bad guys out. Why be so quick to welcome one home? We need to beware of that older brother. He's still around. When you open the door to apply God's grace, he's the one who tried to slam it shut. The father in Luke chapter 15 is criticized by his own family for showing unrestrained grace. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. This was Peter's predicament here in Acts chapter 11. At the end of his testimony, everyone accepted the work of God's grace. Everyone glorified God. But initially, Peter was being accused by legalistic brothers of lowering the bar. Of making God's acceptance too easy. You see, we forget that religious people think that to really know God, you've got to jump through a few hoops. And when you get rid of their hoops, they get mad at you. They'll attack Here's my experience. It's not the preaching of grace that draws fire. It is the practice of it that is so threatening. Give a chance to someone who doesn't deserve a chance. And self-righteous people are up in arms. Perhaps you've heard the expression, grace changes everything. I like the sentiment. But it's not just grace that changes everything. For I have been to lots of churches that preach grace And nothing's changed there for over 50 years. It's grace applied that changes everything. It changed far more than Peter's diet. It changed who he invited for dinner. It changed how he viewed holiness. 
It changed the composition and future of the church. And grace applied will change any church if we let it. It'll change how we treat people. We'll be more tolerant and accepting and patient and kind and less angry and pushy and judgmental. Living by grace is living graciously. Everything changes when grace explodes in your heart. I love how Peter's adventure ends. Gentiles knock on his door. He travels with Gentiles to a Gentile city, Caesarea. He enters the Gentile home of Cornelius. And then he preaches to a room full of Romans and Gentiles. This was a culture shock for a good Jew like Peter. In a sense, Peter just goes up the coast. Just a few miles from from Joppa to Caesarea. But in another sense, Peter is sailing now into uncharted waters. He's on a daring adventure of grace. The rabbis at the time, they would have said that a Gentile wasn't worthy to set foot under the same roof as a Jew. And yet by the end of this day, Gentile believers will know the same God, participate in the same covenant, have the same spirit and the same power and the same evidence as the Jewish believers. And I can still hear the surprise in Peter's voice. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. I mean, before Peter could say much, before he could brief the Gentiles on keeping kosher, or clip a single circumcision, Or brief them on the Sabbath worship. God in heaven reached down and he saved the Italian guard just as he did the Jews. And it had absolutely nothing to do with anything but God's grace and their faith. Did grace provoke Cornelius and his pals to godliness? I'm sure it did. But their good works were the fallout, not the cause of God's favor. The terms of our fellowship never change. All that God provides us is by grace. You know, I grew up going to church. And every church I ever attended preached God's grace. But it took coming to Calvary Chapel for me to see it practiced. At Calvary Chapel, I saw the Holy Spirit fall on the most unlikely candidates. Like the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. He came upon folks before they could clean up. Or memorize a single verse. Or get a job even. Or gain any sort of respectability. By grace, God saved and purified and sanctified and filled. It was all about grace. And my friend, it is still all about grace. If there's one thing I want our church to be known as, it's a grace place. People need grace. Grace is Christianity's most vital contribution to the world. And yet few preach it. Fewer still practice it. People today desperately need to see God's grace in action. So, rise Christian. Kill and eat. Today, let's embark on our own adventure of grace. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we have received such grace. We have received amazing grace. Now, Lord, 
Help us to amaze the world as we share that grace with others. I pray for husbands that they would stop being so demanding on their wives, but they would show their wife some grace. I pray for wives that they would treat their husband with the same grace that they've received from you. I pray for parents that they would show grace toward their kids. And I pray for kids that they would be gracious to their parents. And I pray for brothers and sisters in our church today who are at odds with one another. Lord, I pray that they would forgive and that they would show the same grace to each other that they have received from you. Lord, I pray that this would be a grace place. And Lord, let it start with me. Fill my heart with your amazing grace and then help me to amaze others by the grace that I show. This world knows nothing of grace. Lord, help us to start today to introduce them to your amazing grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.